Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner, and we are still in quarantine, so please forgive any abnormal noises you may hear in the environment today. Also, trigger warning for today's episode. We discuss sensitive topics like mortality, death, transitioning, and grief. And while I've taken precautions to conduct this conversation conscientiously, the information is still direct. So please honor your unique headspace and capacity to self-regulate given our global pandemic and your personal circumstances. We also explore human consciousness in a way that challenges mainstream paradigms. So listen with an open mind. There's much to learn from everyone. It may be useful to cross-reference our episode with Paul Selig from December 2019, who introduced us to concepts like channeling, extrasensory perception, and interdimensional communication in a very grounded way, I might add. So here it goes. Writer Michael Long recently shared that COVID-19 has refocused the world's attention, however briefly, on the transient nature of life. First, I'd like to respectfully argue this is a dangerous generalization given many populations are plenty cognizant and adept at reconciling this fact. Rituals and ceremonies abound globally for the deceased and bereaved. As Rochelle Martin lists in her TED Talk, families in Mexico hold wakes in their homes. In India, Hindu rituals are required before sundown on the day someone passes. In Tibetan Buddhist sky burials, bodies are offered to nature and animals as a final act of generosity. Then there are the millions of people facing famine, violence, lack of access to healthcare, and other challenges who by default are less alienated from death, even if they desired to be. Nonetheless, contextually speaking, many of us are far from welcoming such serious discussions. Instead, we are responding to a looming threat with an understandable surge of our fear of dying and of losing loved ones. Quarantine has further compounded suffering for many, whether you're experiencing health or illness, and grief, which in many ways is a time for connection and closure, is being painfully processed via digital calls, virtual funerals, and isolation. America and many Western cultures remain avoidant and noticeably silent around death, though it is the surest part of life and can sharply clarify our intent to live meaningfully. As surgeon Atul Gawande writes in his book, Being Mortal, our reluctance to honestly examine the experience of aging and dying has increased the harm we inflict on people and denied them the basic comforts they most need. We even withhold children from participating in the grieving process and leave the educational conversations to specialized professionals like hospice and social workers, funeral care guides, nurses, morticians, and thanatologists. Yes, thanatology. That's the scientific study devoted to death and the practices associated with it, including the study of the terminally ill and their families. Death lore not only explores the physical aspect of dying, but seeks to explain our human reactions to it and its social impact. How are we going to approach death today? Through a back alley called the afterlife. Yes, afterlife. Pandora's box. Is there one? Where do we go? What does it look like? Who's there with us? Do any of us struggle to transition due to unfinished business? And while we're still alive, how do we cope when others pass? Where does life end and where does death begin? When everything surrounding this topic is relegated to a taboo, we see society peek inside momentarily with amusement over ghost stories, fascination with near-death experiences, gossip about family drama left behind post-mortem, and scrutiny over which religion, psychic, or scientific theory holds the ultimate truth. But we remain apprehensive about getting too involved in the chatter ourselves. What if we're missing the keys to life because of our refusal to accept our own end? Today, 
we discover that what we think of death is important. Now, there are intrepid individuals who regularly forge connections to this mysterious other side and even contact our departed friends and family. Every practicing medium faces extreme criticism in their careers. And while some, yes, unscrupulously take advantage of vulnerable people and grieving survivors, there are many who use their abilities for good and successfully bring closure to both the living and the transitioned through their connection to the other side. This desire to heal is exactly what defines our guest today. Tyler Henry had his first experience of knowingness at the age of 10. Since then, he has devoted his life to developing his abilities, becoming a respected clairvoyant and the star of Ease Hollywood Medium at just 21 years old. He's performed countless readings for believers and skeptics alike, as well as everyone from his former grade school teachers to A-list celebrities. His memoir, Between Two Worlds, is out now and gives an intimate look at the life of a young medium. Tyler, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. What a warm welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. We like to lay the foundation around here. So first, we'll, we'll dive into your personal background, and then we'll interweave how your career and mission relate to the core elements of the human experience and how your abilities can serve in times of global crisis and loss. Does that seem fair? Absolutely. Let's delve in. (laughs) Perfect. So if you could help lay a quick foundation for us, what is your personal working definition of clairvoyant medium? Is it the same as psychic? Are there other types of mediums? So basically, I really liken a clairvoyant to that who of a person who sees things, sees visuals, has impressions from a more mental image-based perspective. The word clairvoyant actually derives from a French word, Uh, meaning clear sight or clear vision. So that's kind of the descriptor of how a lot of mediums, psychics receive their intuitive impressions. I would say, you know, all uh, mediums are psychic, not all psychics are mediums. So being a medium is considered a psychic ability, but not all people who feel they have a psychic ability practice mediumship. So there's a distinction Mm. to be made with that. And I would just kind of describe whether it's clairvoyance, clairaudience, as, as different modalities of way of sort of receiving uh, intuitive information. So through your different senses. Exactly. Beyond our typical senses. senses. Yeah. Sixth sense uses the other five senses to communicate. So sometimes you'll hear things, feel things, see things, taste things, smell things. And all of that, I think, if you're a good medium, is being able to kind of process what you're feeling sensorily, and then be able to translate that and interpret that into a meaningful message, which is easier said than done. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. And also quite a vivid experience in your body and in your mind. (laughs) It's incredibly immersive. I think every sense is free game. And I am thankful that clairvoyance is my primary modality because some people take it on physically, which I do, but that would not be the best primary ability to have. (laughs) So what happened during your first clairvoyant experience when you were 10? And how did you process that event? So I woke up one night and I was only 10 years old. This was April of 2006. And I woke up out of a sleep and had this knowingness that my grandmother was going to pass away. And at the time, it really just felt like a memory that hadn't happened yet. And it was a feeling that would kind of follow me throughout my entire life, these feelings of memories that either weren't my own or hadn't happened yet. And so I went to the room trying to explain this to my mom and I was crying and really upset. And as I was telling her this feeling, the phone rang and we were interrupted and she pulled out her purse and pulled out her phone. And when she answered it, it was my dad on the other line. And he said that my grandmother had just taken her final breath. So that really acted as the catalyst to kind of understanding my ability. But at 10 years old, it was really more of an incident. It was something that happened to me. It wasn't something I equated to my identity. Mm-hmm. And it took a lot of time and a lot of these continuous knowingnesses to really recognize this as something I could do. Right. And as you're exploring the world of clairvoyance as a child, when did you tell your parents that this was more than just a singular incident? And how do you discern which friends at school or teachers or um, people are trustworthy to hold this information without judging? Sure. You know, as 
the story goes with this, my mom was the first person to know, but it took six years for my dad to actually know about my ability. I was 16 years old when I finally came to him and kind of came out of that psychic closet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, in many ways, it was trying to kind of compartmentalize different aspects of my life and who I was and, you know, without much success, ultimately, as often as the case, those things come out and, you know, people did start hearing about what I could do, word of mouth spread in my little small town. And before I knew it, I had teachers even going so far as to ask for readings um, in exchange for math tutoring. It was really a mini coming outs. That's kind of how I would describe it. I think people can relate to that concept. And I'm just thinking in terms of the psychology of how we have our own schema, our paradigm, whatever framework we were first given to interpret information. And then you have this cataclysmic phenomena that really fractures your sense of normalcy and and how you uh, view the world. How did your ability and and the discovery of your ability alter your belief system at the time? Sure. Well, after the passing of my grandmother, I felt like I grieved very differently because in some ways I kind of had a heads up. And so with that, you know, I found that everyone around me was crying and upset and sad. And I just couldn't shake the profound impact that the experience, the premonition had on me. And so moving forward in my life from there, I viewed death implicitly differently. I think I just by default knew and understood that there was a continuation of consciousness in some capacity. Mm. I grew up with a Presbyterian upbringing, so it wasn't really a subject, mediums, that, that, that was really discussed heavily. And in fact, some were quite against it from a religious perspective. So it took a lot of time and processing how I felt about my own spirituality. And I went from a place of having faith to having trust. And I think that was a huge discernment that I had to make with time. I would go to you know, church and be told to have faith, but then I would come home and have these experiences with the other side and have validating experiences that others could validate. And so I, I kind of gradually went into this place of really being able to trust on something that I could see and could be put forward in front of me. Yeah, trust the experience versus having faith in something that I couldn't see and had to kind of take other people's word for. Right, which doesn't mean that it doesn't exist because even though I haven't been to a certain country, it's definitely there and there are people living real lives there. But of course, when it shifts from that blanket, blind faith to experience, it really does cause you to see um, the potential expansiveness that maybe we haven't yet fully tapped into. Do you notice that there are certain, and I say this with absolutely full respect to all religions, all faith traditions, are there certain concepts that you hear now and wonder if they actually are limiting our ability to enter a paradigm that can validate what you experience on a daily basis? I mean, I think dogma and doctrine can be indoctrinating. (laughs) And so with that, I think um, my experience kind of showed me that, in my opinion, from my perspective, I think religion is very much kind of like a cultural language that we have with a higher power. And if we're born in one part of the world, we might be inclined to speak Farsi. We might be inclined to speak Spanish. We might be inclined to speak French or English in the same way that where we're born geographically does oftentimes have an impact on the beliefs that we are raised around. And so with that, I I think, you know, religions are kind of like cultural languages that we have with that higher power. But I I would say that all belief systems, so long as they're rooted in compassion, have value. Um, But I I think, you know, from from my own evolution in a spiritual sense, I went from growing up religious to really being more spiritual, not uh, invalidating other religions, but if anything, kind of seeing the commonalities between them all. Right. And it can be difficult for people who know you as one thing to accept your own evolution as someone who also has a background in the church and have been navigating my own journey with that. I've noticed that there was a lot of condemnation, a lot of exclusion. I was asked to leave certain communities uh, based on my own experiences that I, I didn't choose. And that was always ironic to me, seeking support from people who unfortunately just weren't able to provide it. Um, I think it can be genuinely scary for people to face a part of themselves in another person that maybe they would prefer to reject and fear about themselves instead of embrace. How do you manage those who love you and who you love who disagree or downright deny 
your ability? Well, I'm very thankful to have a really good support system of family and friends. And most people in my life that I've gotten close to have been read. So they've seen the first hand validation <laughs> of my ability. But it kind of reminds me of the quote that no matter whether you're the juiciest, most authentic peach in the world, there's still going to be people who hate peaches. <laughs> and I think anyone in the public eye is very much reminded of that fact that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what you stand for, as there are 7 billion human beings on this planet, we are going to be matched by challenges and people who might have a different framework and a belief system. So for me, I find that you know it can be a massive drain of energy to focus on those who aren't a peach fan, so to speak, and to people who may project their own belief systems into my belief system. And I think with that, I found that it's important to have acceptance over what I can't control and mm -hmm. be able to cultivate the relationships that I do have and manage what I can control. Blanket wisdom for all of us <laughs> yeah. forevermore. Acceptance is such a key. And it actually reminds me, uh, Esther Perel, who was writing a book that was actually centered on a completely different topic, erotic intelligence and the indifferentiating love and desire and intimacy and everything that goes into those. She actually observed how we have so many contradictions within ourselves. And she said, how about instead of trying to view this as a problem to solve, what if it's just a paradox to manage? And I've loved ever since reading that, seeing that we really can embrace the diversity of thought. We can let the diversity within our circles, within our families, lead us to new innovation, more creativity, seeing things from a new lens. But as long as we're able to affirm and validate someone's reality as being real to them, even if it doesn't feel real for us, it's just sort of like the entry point for, I would say, you know, compassionate dialogue. Yeah. And so speaking of being in the public eye, correct me if I'm wrong, but becoming a full-time medium is a rather unconventional career, especially at your age. And there are actually some parallels to my experience as a, a child star, you as a child medium, in terms of the unusual responsibilities and expectations placed on you by strangers, like you said, your teachers, executives, even relatives who want you to perform for them on demand and live up to a superhuman status. And very few have an accurate understanding of your day-to-day -day life. I'm sure there are plenty of, of misconceptions and misperceptions. And how did you manage the feeling of being understood, if ever? And do you feel that your development as a person holistically has in any way, shape, or form been impaired or stunted by the sort of early entry into grown-up responsibilities and carrying heavier burdens? I think, if anything, uh, I've had to really kind of accept being misunderstood, and, and I think it's really a common lesson that we all might, on some either micro or macro level, after process. Being in the public eye does make you more susceptible to that. But I think all individuals have to understand that we're not always understood and to some extent have peace with that. So I, I think through my journey as a child and having experiences that I couldn't explain myself nor could be understood by others, I, I had to really apply acceptance. I think it was a resonating theme throughout my life. And even on the other side, and, and we'll get into that in a little, I think acceptance is really the key to peace. And that seems to be a lesson that the other side has even taught me that from my perspective, it's not heaven or hell or, you know, people wonder how are our loved ones at peace? Well, I think that peace is only and exclusively obtained through acceptance of our lives. And so for me, I try to practice that in my day to day. Mm. And then developmentally, when it comes to, you know, mental, emotional, even physical, for me, I'll relate it to my experience as a dancer and an athlete. I was performing so many hours a day that my actual physical development was stunted and harmed the same way you see maybe an Olympic gymnast who, you know, has an excess of muscle here, but maybe a deficiency in something else hormonally or whatever. Your career is still very intensive. And like you said, immersive. Did you notice anything developmentally that you're like, ah, I wasn't able to hang out with friends because I was busy working or anything like that? I mean, as an only child, I grew up uh, very much a bit of a loner. <laughs> and so I think that alone did also kind of help prepare me for my work in, in a bit mm. of a roundabout way. For some reason, I just didn't really desire a lot of the social relationships that I did later go on to miss out on. Uh, mm. I never went to prom. I never 
had a traditional, you know, graduation ceremony. Those things to me just weren't really important. And, and I've wondered if it wasn't because of my ability or if it was just because the way I am. But if anything, I think, you know, there are some aspects to be said about not being able to be a child, not being able to just be and kind of take on that role. So if anything, as an adult, I recognize sometimes that inner child that didn't get the chance to do certain things. But simultaneously, I understand the importance and again, have to apply acceptance over what I can't fix or control. Right. And it is beautiful to be able to be pulled from uh, a position of understanding a calling or a sense of mission, instead of feeling like you're being pushed and forced, that you really do recognize the importance and value of the service that you're providing for people. And then also, of course, recognizing that you yourself do have your own needs and your inner child deserves all of the love and support and adequate, healthy attachment that we all need. So thank you for sharing. I just thought, you know, it's a little, I have the curiosity whenever I meet someone who has entered a quote unquote workplace at a young age, whether by choice or force. So shifting gears, there's a Confucian saying that goes, everyone has two lives. The second one begins when you realize you only have one. The certainty of death gives specialness to life in this form. Um, it is an ever-present contextualizer that shapes our priorities and values and our pursuits when we yield to its teachings. What lessons have you gleaned from the other side during your readings or your own exploration? You've mentioned acceptance as one of them that help you live personally a more meaningful life. Well, I think just looking at the large amount of people who contact me with something unresolved. So many people come to mediums because they're looking for closure. And oftentimes that closure revolves around things that went unsaid, um, words that went unspoken. And so I, I think for me, the way that it's changed how I've lived my life is, is understanding the value of saying it now while we still have the chance. My goal for everyone that I meet is to leave the experience not only with a sense of connection, but with an understanding of the importance of saying your piece, <laughs> saying it now, communicating while you have the chance mm -hmm. so that nothing goes unresolved, so that you don't have that regret of what you could have done or done differently. So if anything, I mean, I think there's a natural aspect. People do sometimes regret how they handled things or, or not, but ultimately saying it now has, has been the most important lesson. And are there any lessons from the other side when, you know, someone who has transitioned or the presence you're contacting views our society, do they kind of laugh at some of the things we value, you know, what, what, what do they say? Hey, that, come on, that's a total waste of time. That's harmful or silly. Absolutely. So, you know, I found that really the process of kind of going through the death process on the other side, for me, from what I've found revolves around two things, and that's processing our ego and experiencing a life review. And both of those aspects to our journey, spiritual journey, I think contribute to ultimately having acceptance and having peace. And so when they come through, they look at the framework, at the conditioning that they live their lives through, and they ultimately recognize, once they have an understanding of the interconnection we all share, how mundane or how singular that was and how as a spiritual being, we're so much more than that single aspect. And so with that, they sometimes look back at their staunch beliefs with regret. They look back at the hills they were willing to die on, so to speak, um, the things that they were willing to just fight and argue and create problems around that really didn't matter often that much. And, and so I think that understanding of ego, the conditioning that informs our ego, all of that gets processed and ultimately let go of. And that to me is what I found leads to peace. And that's true that we see many seekers, spiritual teachers, fans of psychedelics, <laughs> speaking about this concept, ego death, which is in essence a complete loss of the subjective self-identity where you return to the state of everything being wholly interconnected. I might be mispronouncing his name, unfortunately, so forgive me, everyone. Ramana Maharshi is considered by many as one of the most enlightened mystics in the last century, and he's one of the contributors in a book called The Seven Steps to Awakening, which proposes this pathway to experiencing the true, infinite, eternal awareness, love state. Ironically, it could actually be restated as going from denying death to this full death awareness that you're speaking of, this acceptance, which 
actually leads to liberation. And there's this idea, like you're sharing, that those who have transitioned to the afterlife gain new perspective. They don't stop growing and learning. And so you have this life review and you're letting go of the ego. Is there a way that we can preemptively begin the process here? <laughs> so it's a great question. You know, I actually, this reminds me, I just had a conversation with a friend who, speaking of psychedelics, you know, was recently very much into mushrooms. Mm. And he said, you know, Tyler, I've obtained ego death. It's great. You should do it. And I looked at him and I said, are you sure? <laughs> and the reason being was because I found on the other side that they recognize that ego death is something to be experienced in their realm. And that if we were to completely eliminate our ego here in this realm, it would really prevent us from having certain structures, certain uh, valuable and necessary mechanisms to cope and to deal and to get up every single day and go to work. <laughs> and so I think to some extent, I'm not anti-ego. I think it is something we let go of when we die. But if anything, being mindful of the ego we have, being mindful of the frameworks we've created is important. Mm. Maybe not trying to eliminate them altogether, but being conscientious of them and trying to improve the filter that we see life through. And that to me is really what ego is. So. Mm. Ego death, I think, is natural and it's going to be a process we all go through, but not one we necessarily have to strive through or feel a pressure to have to eradicate while we're here. It can be not a problem to solve, but a paradox to manage. No. <laughs> exactly. Love how that's just coming up for me. I'm saying that more for me than anyone else. They're like, we get it, Allison. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm embedding this for my own transformation's sake. So there's a thanatologist, Cole Imperi, and she splits death into two categories. She considers big deaths to include losing a person or an animal you deeply care about, and then little deaths, which cover the day-to-day -day losses like going through divorce, trying to get into the college of your dreams and being unable to do so, or losing your job. And of course, when I use the term little, I don't mean to undermine any of those experiences. Those are fraught with emotional baggage and, and stuff to process. And both big and little deaths include the grieving process. And for those who are unfamiliar, the grieving process happens non-linearly <laughs> across many stages, including the denial of the loss, anger toward the situation or even yourself, bargaining to make it better or try and reverse the outcome, uh, depression, which is often accompanied by sadness and despair, and then eventually acceptance as you adjust to a new normal. Cole shares that each little and big death build our muscle of resiliency as we recognize the guidance and the strength that come from such events. And if we rise through the loss, our little deaths can actually lift us and, and make us the best we can become. So Tyler, you work with people who are at every stage of grieving and every griever is not a medium, but every medium, if they live long enough, will be a griever. You mentioned that this has altered your experience of how you process and, and interpret death. Have any particular readings stood out to you that informed or transformed your own relationship to grief and grieving? Absolutely. You know, after season one of my show came out, I was contacted by a woman named Heather, and she was in her 30s. She lived about 20 miles away, and she was a fan of the show. And I read her email, and as I was looking at it, she actually went on to reveal that she had recently been diagnosed with a terminal blood cancer. And she was in her 30s, and she was happily married, and she had a seven-year-old little boy. And she was wanting a reading because she knew that she had probably about six months left to live. And so I immediately agreed. I went to her house. I met her. And when I sat with her, her loved ones came through um, all various types that really relayed the importance of saying what she could say while she still had the chance. And if anything, the importance of, of her creating her own legacy while she was still alive. And so she took that message to heart. She recorded the reading for her family to be able to see years into the future so that they could get the same validation and same comfort she got. But she went so far as to create a time capsule to be opened a decade after her death for her family to enjoy and be able to see new things from her. She created a video that was to be aired or shown rather at her funeral, acknowledging every single person who she knew would be there and having a personalized message to them. But what was so profound to me was that she went so far as to even create 
birthday cards for her seven-year-old little boy for every birthday of his life until he was 40 years old. So that even after his mom had passed, he would still every year be able to get a new message from her and be able to mold and create her legacy in a way that was even more valuable than she could have before. So that message for me, that one experience singularly transformed how I go about my day, how I communicate with others, how I validate the love I have for those I care for, and how I validate myself. Yes, that is a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. And I do want to talk more about legacy building, but I have one question before we take a quick break. And that is (laughs) shifting gears, quick little pivot. I've heard you share that every soul is interconnected. And so some souls are in our lives to teach us lessons via soul contracts Can you give us some examples of how we might recognize these individuals and what kinds of lessons we are meant to learn from them? So when we think of the words or the term soul contract, I don't really think of it as this piece of paper that we- Legal (laughs) terms? Terms and conditions. If anything, I think it's a simplified way of viewing a concept of interconnection and certain connections having more of a profound effect than others. And so I think people can have, in essence, these soul contracts with people that they meet very briefly, others that are long-term parts of their lives. And so when we look at certain um, reoccurring factors, for example, certain people that we may not be able to get away from throughout our lives that we have to then kind of face and deal with and process, I think all of those challenges that can come from soul contracts actually do allow for resilience and opportunities to learn and opportunities to grow. So I have a really strong belief that people are mirrors into who we are and our own capabilities and our own potential. And so I think soul contracts really embody that idea that whether you have a soul contract with somebody that you're in love with and very close to, or whether you might have a soul contract with somebody you're not particularly inclined to like, all of those relationships have value. There's something to teach us. And even if it's a fleeting moment of interaction, there's something to be gained. And so that's really how I define soul contracts. You can be a student of all and a teacher if others are willing to learn. Whether you mean to be teaching or not, we are leading by some kind of example. We're both the cause and the effect in this sort of circle of life and dance with everyone around us. So I do want to ask about hearing from the deceased more and this legacy building, also self-care for supernatural abilities and how we might also develop our own intuitive abilities. But first, let's take a quick break. Welcome back. We are here with Tyler Henry. So Tyler... We generally understand and empathize why the living would want to reach out to loved ones who have passed on as they process grief. You've mentioned a little bit about this, but are there any other things about why the deceased would want to reach out to us? And I'm guessing, just like we don't want to go banging on our neighbor's door without a decent reason or, you know, some respect, do you need to ask permission or set intentions before summoning certain presences? Totally. So before I do any reading, I have a little prayer that I go through where I really just state that I want to leave the person better than I found them. And then no matter what comes out of my mouth, I want it to be something that's going to be of value and help someone along in their path. And so when I've do do a reading, I find that it's really entirely dependent on the spirit coming through. I, as a medium, have no control over who makes an appearance, nor does the client. Sometimes people will want to hear from their grandmother, and then the husband that they killed with the lime jello will come through instead. So you never know. (laughs) But I've found that on the other side, they do acknowledge that really it's very important for them to also relay messages, just as there is an alleviation of grief to some extent when someone does come through from the other side to a living person. There's an alleviation of responsibility often on their side to those who've passed when they come through recognizing something they didn't recognize when they were here. As we process our ego, as we see that life review, I think we obviously by nature come to understandings that we didn't have when we were here. And so in our goal of trying to obtain acceptance, it can be very powerful for them on the other side to relay this to those who are still here, who they may have hurt or may have affected detrimentally, even if it was unknowingly. And that process of communication is, is in two kind of two ways healing, not only for the client, but for the person that's passed. 
I'm guessing this is me using, you know, human constructs to try and explain something beyond. Time doesn't work the same way. So these visits can happen 20 years, 50 years, three days after maybe the physical passing in our dimension. But on the other side, who knows really when, you know, the sense of a person is complete and they kind of shift into a new form. Does that even sound like it aligns with? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And I think we're all kind of works in progress and that is really exemplified even on the other side as we process our lives and not only what we did, but what we didn't do. Mm -hmm. I think all of that kind of calculates into how our consciousness reaches a state of understanding. So let's talk about how the afterlife correlates to our legacy here. You know, our bodies return to the earth and our energy passes on. Our living self is known and remembered by the legacy we leave. As you mentioned with Heather, you know her through her children. You know teachers by their students. You know people by the infrastructure we built for the coming generations to inherit and how we treat the planet. For you, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? And do you think it would have been any different if you hadn't uncovered your ability? Well, I think through this journey, I've really found that our interests are indications of our calling. And for me, I was thrust into my interest. I had no real choice, but (laughs) I, I went with it. And that, as many can relate to, there's really a lot of moments where you have to apply courage to be able to pursue your interests, even if it's not supported by other people. So if there was any legacy to be left, I think it would be, I would like to be remembered as somebody who followed my passions even when it was difficult to do and stayed in alignment with who I was, even when that was met with pushback. But that said, I also think you know this work has also contributed, and as you can relate, to starting a conversation, being someone who took subjects that might have been intangible and brought them into a more mainstream and conscious way. And so I mm-hmm. think that for me has been a, a great fulfillment in my own life and hopefully something that continues after I've passed. But going back to your second question, you know, when I was 16 years old, I graduated high school early with the goal of becoming hospice nurse. So I went to school, was the youngest person in my college class. And at the time I thought that's where life was going to take me. So ultimately I think I've been able to achieve the same legacy that I would have even if I had gone in a more maybe practical <laughs> sense. But sure. ultimately the, the goal was the same, to provide that validation, to provide that understanding, and at the very least, just contribute to the conversation. Mm, that's beautiful. We share a lot of parallels. I too graduated at the same age and went on to start studying neuroscience. There you go. And somatics. And now I understand how they correlate to the programs I design for movement and, um, you know, building just a greater self-awareness and understanding how, you know, the actual neurochemistry, so you don't feel overwhelmed constantly by what's going on inside your own skin. But I would say I'm thankful that we're both able to see and people are able to transfer their skill sets to an infinite number of career paths. And many people are going through a lot of transitions right now, a lot of little deaths, if we want to recall that term, and they may be losing whatever kept together their normal, whether that's employment or family or whatnot, but now they're able to recontextualize uh, what they've learned, all the skills that they do have, and find ways to to step into that truth and value against a new canvas. It's just simply, you know, a fresh canvas and you bring all of your wonderful truth to it wherever you go. So from my observation, and you just spoke to this as desiring to be you know, a hospice worker, I consider what you do to be a form of caregiving. And whether someone is clergy administering last rites, a live-in health aid, grief counselor, or medium, the experience can be quite grueling. And the burnout rate is, is very high, and it requires greater skills in the area of self-care and grief processing. How do you balance your health and mission? How do you set boundaries, both for the living and the dead, those who have passed? Right. Well, you know, I think compartmentalization has actually been a very valuable tool for me. You see it in ER doctors, people who are in high stress situations, EMTs, that to some extent to do their job effectively, they do have to compartmentalize. There's times where I'll do a reading and I want to burst into tears crying because I feel so strongly for the person, but I can't because if I do, that impedes my job to deliver the message 
and to effectively do what I'm there to do. So I think compartmentalization has been helpful and also just understanding and never straying from my feeling of purpose. I think it can be very easy to get caught up in technicalities, in the what ifs, in um, you know concerns about not being accurate. Uh, all those things, all those expectations can kind of hinder us from our greater purpose. And I think we all have an intuition. We all have the ability to apply our intuition, but that is directly correlative with our ability to recognize I think, what we're here to do to some extent and mm-hmm. both kind of help each other. So you're able to disconnect Yes. Take a day off. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's been imperative because if I don't, I think it would, as you said, burnout would be almost guaranteed. So mm-hmm. being able to create those own kind of mental structures has been helpful. And I've also found that, you know, if I don't do readings for a period of time, information will start coming through at night when I go to sleep. So it's usually about two to three weeks I start hitting some difficulty if I'm not working. So as long as I work, as long as I do a reading here and there, I'm able to maintain some sense of normalcy when it's time to, to not work. Hmm, interesting. And yeah, there are points in life where the work we're being called to do requires us to change, to let go or step into a new form, which is, you know, another form of loss and rebirth. Has there been any particular piece of you, whether that's a belief about yourself or a practical habit that interfered with your mission? And how have you worked through this so that you're able to serve more clearly? Sure. I think self-doubt has been something that I've dealt with my entire life. I actually have OCD and so much of OCD and I've had it since I was a child. It revolves around this self-doubt and having to check and having to make sure that things you know, are okay. And so for me, it's, there's kind of some great irony of having to rely on an intuition when that very mechanism that intuition is going through is you know, a little altered with self-doubt. And so every time I do a reading, I have to put aside the concern or the fear that I might be wrong or the expectation not only the client may have, but I may have on myself mm-hmm. and trust that no matter what I'm feeling, I have to go with what I know to be true and what's going to come through. So self-doubt is something I've really had to process and ultimately learn how to not eliminate, but how to keep in check because it too, I think may be part of the ego. And again, not something I want to eliminate entirely, but something that I think realistically, manage. yeah, manage and, and keep in mind. Yeah. We share that as well. <laughs> I'm just going to go down a checklist. Yes. In fact, I will say, I even went to do my hair this morning and thought, I might match you too closely. So I decided to add a hat and not slick it to the side. Of course, it's much better. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's you're looking pretty sharp over there. I'm, I'm going to start braiding mine. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Being here in quarantine, I'm like, am I going to have to learn how to cut my own hair here pretty soon? These roots, I'm just... <laughs> It's good. It's ombre. It's ombre. (laughs) There you go. Ever the optimist. Love it. (laughs) So in your book, you shared that you believe um, abilities aren't genetic, but that nature and nurture might play a role in how a person processes their abilities. To build on this, uh, psychiatry professor Jim Tucker conducted an exhaustive study based on the previous work of Ian Stevenson, and together they documented 2,500 cases of children recalling vivid and sometimes verifiable past lives with the memories of these lives fading around six years of age. For you, Tyler, over time, you've deliberately practiced and and refined your ability as both a craft and calling, and you've come to recognize and identify a personal set of symbols sent to you through spirits. So some of them are torn lace, which indicates divorce, and a ribbon, meaning cancer, and then you use them to piece together the messages. Now that, you know, much of the world is on lockdown, how might we use this time to practically and also safely develop our ability to tune into the information from other realms? What methods have you used to improve your skills over the years? So intuition, as I said, is something we all have. And if you even look at the word intuition, it means inner tuition, inner knowledge. So it's something we all have the ability to connect with some more than others. And I think even the most unintuitive people have moments of intuition from first impressions 
which so many of us don't take and then regret later on, to sometimes just unexplainable feelings of hesitance. Now, as someone with OCD, it's good to keep in check, you know, what's uh, just purely biochemistry and what is intuition. But what I have been able to help or see uh, as being helpful with this is mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness is really about being present and being able to eliminate the conscious anxieties over the past and the fears of the future and being able to get into a state where you're just ever conscious of the present moment. And when I do a reading, I even have to be able to not think about maybe, you know, the fight I got in verbally with someone you know, before the reading or the concern that the reading might not go well when I'm done. I have to be able to be present and to kind of eliminate that cognizance of the past, the fear of the future. And that to me is what mindfulness is. And I think there's a big expectation on people to make mindfulness this big meditation process where we cross our legs and go home. I don't find that to be practical. I think if you can have even just 10 seconds of mindfulness in your day, that's 10 seconds of mindfulness you didn't have before. So finding little opportunities to be present, whether it's zoning out to your favorite song or daydreaming or going about your time and just making a conscious effort to focus on your breathing. All those things are different ways to just kind of realign recheck. And if you can make that a lifestyle versus a practice, intuition comes through a lot more fluidly. Mm. So are there any specific pieces of advice for navigating COVID-19 and being stuck inside as it relates to mindfulness or even, I mean, physical practices? Because, hey, we, we got to stay active. Get some blood flow. It, absolutely. <laughs> I found it very important to maintain a schedule, to maintain some sense of a structure. You know, obviously most of us can't go out and go to work or do what we're used to doing, but there's still ways that we can rise to the occasion to have some semblance of our own normalcy that we create. And so that for me, at least, has been very helpful, being able to maintain some sense of normalcy when there isn't uh, yes. much, you know, in, in the outside world. And then also, it's incredibly important to stay informed and to know what's going on. But sometimes I think that can be to our own detriment if we're not, I mean, honestly, even the most mentally fit people, I think, are getting overwhelmed and stressed out. So regulating, you know, the extent that you watch the news and the extent that you focus on self-care Having that balance is important, and I think both are really essential right now. Yes, everyone listening and watching, if you are willing to be this transparent, I invite you to share your screen time stats from this week. <laughs> because, wow, I saw mine and it was up like 30% in the past week. Granted, I use my phone quite a bit for work all day long, but I can't justify all of that time. Mine was at eight and a half hours. Yes. So I, I have. Same. Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> and unfortunately, I did the calculations as someone with my personality type does. And I asked myself, if I do this every day for the rest of my life, how many years of my life will have been spent just scrolling? And it goes up to double digits, years <laughs> of just scrolling. If you're at like three to four hours of entertainment consumption a day. So just putting that out there, folks. Check yourselves. Mindfulness. We wreck ourselves, yes. Now, your 2020 live tour titled An Evening of Hope, Healing, and Closure has been temporarily postponed while we are eagerly awaiting its return. What are you working on currently and how can we follow you for updates? Well, I've been able to take this time and do Skype readings for people. I do a lot of reading giveaways for free on my Instagram, which is at Ty, Tyler Henry Medium. <laughs> Twitter is Ty Henry Medium, not enough characters. But this time has been you know, important for me to just kind of focus on giving back to the best of my ability. Um, because going to those live shows is really an opportunity for me to do readings in a big way. And because I can't do that right now, I've taken it kind of digitally. So I look forward to going back to it when it's safe. But you know, in the meantime, I think and now it's just the time to kind of realign, recenter, and if anything, you know, so many of us I think have been in positions where we feel like you know we don't have enough time to do X, Y, and Z. Well, now most of us do, so it's an opportunity to do new things, make that recipe that you've been putting off, and also meditation. People are always saying I don't have time to meditate. Well, now a lot of us do, so it's an opportunity. That's very true. So lastly, just for fun, if you decided to pursue another career, knowing that you have this interest in helping bringing healing and closure, do you have any other interests that are like totally left of center or things that inspire you in this world that you're like, oh, that would be fun? 
Sure. I mean, well, really, I'm kind of a very one-dimensional person for connecting to so many dimensions. <laughs> but I, I do love art. I love painting. I think, as you can see, this painting behind me. I this, have mine here. Oh, Look at there that. We are twinning too much. <laughs> yes. So that, to me, is a great application of intuition. I think your intuition can come through in so many ways, and hobbies are a great way to do that, too. Mindfulness you know, can be a practice. So Yes. Well, I look forward to seeing everything that you paint during quarantine. Thank you. <laughs> the quarantine paintings. Can't right. wait. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure hearing your perspective. For everyone listening, you can watch reruns of Ease Hollywood Medium with Tyler Henry on eonline.com to see Tyler in action and discover more about the impact of his work. And you can also purchase tickets to his live tour called An Evening of Hope, Healing and Closure through his website, tylerhenryhollywoodmedium.com. And you can also find his memoir, Between Two Worlds, online or at your favorite bookstore once we're out and about. I will make sure all of those links are also in the episode description. So you just one click away and then we can all join and watch and attend your live events and read and just experience the fullness of who you are. Thank you again for being here. Allison, it's been amazing. One of the best conversations I've had in a long time. So oh, good. You. I'm glad. <laughs> Woohoo! Okay, friends, it's time for this week's mantras. I have five affirmations that can help reframe the way we view and experience life, our world, and ourselves. Jot these down and repeat often to consciously raise your reality. So I'm gonna read each twice, and on the third repetition, I'll remain silent so you have the opportunity to repeat it for yourself. First, I attain peace through full acceptance of my life, including death. I attain peace through full acceptance of my life, including death. I will say my piece while I can. And that's P-I-E-C-E this time. I will say my piece while I can. The people in my life are mirrors into who I am. What can I learn? The people in my life are mirrors into who I am. What can I learn? I accept being misunderstood. I fully accept myself. I accept being misunderstood. I fully accept myself. And lastly, my legacy will leave every person and place better than I found them. My legacy will leave every person and place better than I found them. Wonderful. You know, it's comforting to think about how all our souls are connected. And the more we move beyond ego, the more we accept this truth. However, as Tyler suggested, our ego self is not something to eliminate from our human experience. It's a container through which our soul can learn, process, and evolve. As you reflect further, here are some questions to ponder. What comes to mind when you consider that everyone around you is meant to be there and is a mirror for you? How does it feel to consider that those who aren't with us anymore aren't truly gone? Would love to hear your thoughts. And hey, be sure to send this to someone who can find comfort and inspiration. If you haven't already, let us know what you think about Simplexity by leaving a rating and review. Hopefully a nice one. Shout out to the fam. <laughs> and thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time for more Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.